Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, January the 25th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the West Coast of the United States as a immigrant, although I'm not formally an American citizen. Um, I've always been very curious about America, loved and loathed around the world, brings out the best and the worst, and I think in all of us. And it's a country which veers between the extremes of ven vengefulness and enormous um, uh, decency. Uh, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. America's struggle between vengeance and virtue, between goodness and evil, seems to be a country which not just brings out vengeance and virtue, in its own citizens, but in people dealing with it. My guest today is Zachary Shaw, and he has a new book out uh, on the Second World War called This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. It's not just a historical book. Uh, uh, Zachary is a historian, uh, but I think he implicit, at least in the book, is a broader message about America. Zachary is joining us from Berkeley, California. Welcome, Zachary. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Zach, this idea of America as being simultaneously vengeful and virtuous um, seems to be, in some ways, at least for me as an outsider, the defining quality of its history. Is that a too simplistic uh, an observation? As a historian, I'm trained to say it's more complicated than that. That's always our response. But yes, certainly in this period of World War II and shortly thereafter, the early Cold War, we do see a tremendous battle going on inside the country over those who wanted to be harsh and you could say cruel to their enemies and those who really fought for mercy. Wouldn't that be fair? To um, to say the same, perhaps, about United Kingdom, Bomber Harris, of course, wanted to bomb Germany back into the Stone Age. There are others in the United Kingdom who were slightly less vengeful. Was there some something unique about America's struggle between ven vengeance and virtue in, in the Second World War? Yes, because you would expect to find in a time of war that demands for vengeance would be at their peak. And that's what most people would want. And yet the opposite was true. To my surprise, what I found was that the overwhelming majority, not only of the American public, but of key decision makers favored mercy over revenge. And it was actually only a minority of key officials who managed to push vengeful policies through. Would it be fair to say though that there was less reason to be vengeful in the United States compared with Britain or Russia or France, given that the United States itself wasn't, I mean, apart from Pearl Harbor, of course, wasn't um, wasn't bombed dramatically and many, many thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians killed. Well, that's the key point, I think. It is about the incidents and the three cases I focus on are two of them really stem from Pearl Harbor, the internment of Japanese Americans and the dropping of the atomic bombs. And then I also look at the decision to starve, essentially starve the Germans under occupation after the war. 
So, yes, I think there was there was reason to expect a lot of angry calls and demands for revenge within the U.S. Zach, you're a professor of international relations. I'm assuming that you think in the tradition of the idealist school, because of course, realists would suggest that foreign policy, whether it's America's or otherwise, is never either vengeful or virtuous. It's simply realist, which incorporates an element of vengefulness and an element of virtuous, virtuousness, depending on whether it's in the nation's best interest. So are you an idealist when it comes to making sense of American behavior during the Second World War? No, Andrew, I actually don't fit into any camp clearly because I'm not actually a professor of international relations, which would be a subfield of political science. I'm a historian and uh, I don't have these kinds of rigid categories or worldviews. So I don't begin with those kinds of assumptions about how policy works. Instead, I start with questions, dig into the archives, see what the documents tell me, and go from there. Zach, much of this, of course, stems from the top. FDR has never struck me as a particularly vengeful man, um, but neither has he struck me as a particularly virtuous one. How does FDR fit into your narrative of this is not who we are? Well, you're right about uh, in the case of the internment, when he was asked, what should we do with the Japanese aliens and the Japanese Americans living on the West Coast? He told his Secretary of War, just handle it however you see best. And it's clear that this was not a top priority for FDR. So he was not really the person behind the internment. It was not about his vengeance, but some others. And with the atomic bombs, of course, he had already passed away. With the planning for post-war Japan, I'm sorry, for post-war Germany, uh, it's very hard to say what he really believed because he told whoever was with him in the office what they wanted to hear. <laughs> and he would really, he would then deny to the next person that he had, he had said what he said. In fact, in one amazing moment, Secretary of War Henry Stimson has lunch with him at the White House. And he says, Mr. President, how could you have ever agreed at a meeting with Churchill in Quebec? How could you have agreed to this incredibly harsh post-war occupation plan, the Morgenthau plan for Germany, which is going to lead to mass starvation of average German citizens? And the president flat out denied that he'd ever done any such thing. And then Stimson takes out of his jacket pocket a copy of the signed <laughs> agreement. <laughs> and the president says, well, I, I, I don't know how I could have signed such a thing. <laughs> you know, it was, was he lying or was he was so ill at that point? Is it possible he could have forgotten? I find yeah. that hard to believe. Yeah, I think if, if America ever had a, a truly Machiavellian president, it was Roosevelt. I admire mm. him for that, others perhaps <laughs> less so. The interesting thing about Roosevelt, FDR, Zach, I, I, I just watched Ken Burns's documentary on the Roosevelts, and it seemed as if he used his wife, Eleanor, as his virtuous bit, as his conscience. I know she was quite outspoken on, on, on the internment of the Japanese. How did he balance all that, especially given that Eleanor must have been furious about the Japanese policy? Here's the most interesting and tragic part about that, is that Eleanor Roosevelt had to come out in favor of the internment. 
And she gives a speech to the nation on radio on February 15th, just four days before the executive order that Roosevelt issues. And she says the Japanese are going to have to be moved away from their homes. And in wartime, innocent people sometimes have to suffer. And we don't want them to plant their gardens in the West Coast where they can't use them, but we'll have them plant their gardens and raise vegetables so that they can be of use to the country in this new territory. And it's really surprising and disturbing that she had to do this. But I think she realized that she could not, as the wife of the president, come out so directly against her husband's policy. Uh, and then on two other issues, she also supported the dropping of the atomic bombs and supported the harsh occupation policy for Germany. So everything that you would expect Eleanor Roosevelt to do, she did the opposite. It's interesting uh, on the Japanese uh, internment policy. I was last year, I was in New Orleans. I went to the World War II Museum. There's quite a lot of stuff about that, a lot of regret. Um, but perhaps overshadowing that was race and race policy in the United States during the Second World War, particularly get, um, particularly uh, of focusing on black soldiers. We did a show with a Dartmouth a historian about how poorly American black soldiers were treated during the war. Why did you choose to perhaps overlook that issue? Because it seems as if it's a, it's a classic example of American struggle between vengeance and virtue, although there wasn't a lot of virtue there. Yes, I chose the cases I did because, not because I wanted to overlook anything. There's a great deal of- Yeah, I'm not accusing you. No, I understand. <laughs> I understand. We have to be, we have to be focused. But one reason was because we, we have a classic work in our field called War Without Mercy by John Dower, prize-winning book, 35 years old now. And what he found was, not surprising at all, racism was so deep and widespread across the United States in the 1940s that, of course, he found ample evidence of racist attitudes from the top leadership of the government all the way through the American public, and especially on the battlefield in the Pacific theater that fueled war crimes. Race hates fueled war crimes. That's basically his thesis. And that might be true on the battlefield, but back in America, at the highest levels of decision-making, this was much less a war without mercy and much more a war over mercy as different factions battled it out and really the majority tried to get merciful policies put through. Let's come on to your, your second uh, case study in the book on, on, on the Americans' decision to drop a nuclear weapon, two nuclear weapons on, on Japan and Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I was in Hiroshima a few years ago, and uh, it's still one of the, the most memorable experiences of my life to visit uh, the site where the bomb was dropped. Uh, I, I, I'm curious whether you see the dropping of the bomb. Of course, it was done by Truman and not by FDR. Do you see it as a vengeful act? Because, of course, people who try to excuse it suggest that there was nothing vengeful. It was purely realistic, and it was an attempt, successful as it happens, to bring the war to an end. When Truman announced it to the nation, he said, uh, the Japanese began this war with the attack 
on Pearl Harbor, they have now been repaid many fold. Now, if that's not a statement of vengeance, I'm not sure what is. I think it was mixed though. There was much more going on here. And the complexities around this decision are immense and have been uh, widely debated, deeply researched, and still we can't come to uh, a clear agreement on what really happened and what led to this decision. But if I could stress one point, it would be that it was not nearly as simple as we've been told, which is that there was a choice between either dropping the bomb or invading Japan and losing an unknown number of uh, Allied soldiers. There were other options, and those probably should have been explored more fully. And there were people inside the government who were trying hard to explore a third option, conditional surrender, allow the Japanese to keep the emperor on the throne, and then maybe it would not be necessary either to invade or use the bomb, and we could all go home. Uh, I tell the story of how that, how that uh, option, option C for conditional surrender, was pushed through and then ultimately overturned by Truman. There were other options as well. Go ahead. Do you see that third option of keeping the emperor on the throne and not invading as virtuous or simply naive? Well, it's what actually happened in the end. Um, it could have been offered much sooner than it was and well before the bombs were dropped. After both bombs were dropped, the Japanese sent a note that still did not seem like surrender. They still insisted that the emperor would have to be retained. And that's when Secretary of the Navy, Forrestal, came up with a rather elegant solution. He said, all right, why don't we tell them they can keep the emperor, but General MacArthur will have ultimate authority. And they agreed, and that's what happened. Now, if they had done that before the dropping of the atomic bombs, maybe, we don't know, we just don't know, but maybe the bombs would never have been needed. Is implicit in, in your book and in this argument, um, Zach, that the dropping of nuclear weapons on um, on Japan, American weapons on Japan, was a, a morally flawed decision? Honestly, Andrew, I used to say that the bombs were necessary to end the war. And that's because I hadn't studied it deeply enough. Now that I've immersed myself in it and really wrestled with the complexities of it, I feel that we cannot possibly know what was necessary or not to induce a surrender. And so I'm less critical of the decision makers, but I do think that these other options should have been pursued. And if they had failed, then maybe the bombs were necessary, would have been necessary. In the midst of the war, um, when it was so difficult to make decisions, um, it must have been even more muddled. I mean, you can't make a decision now. You've got distance, we've got exactly. time, we've got perspective. Right. I yes. mean, for Truman and for his generals, who, who comes out of this sack? Uh, looking vengeful and, and who comes out of it looking virtuous of uh, the inner circle around Truman? What's interesting is that the vast majority of those around Truman in the civilians, the State Department officials, but even the military leaders, all, not all, but most seem to oppose the dropping of the bomb. 
and then later, after the war, issued statements like, this is not how we were taught to wage war, dropping weapons like this on hundreds of thousands, we estimate 200,000 uh, civilians killed in, the, in these attacks. So vengeful, who was vengeful? With Truman, I also think it's mixed. Although he made statements that sounded vengeful, he also made others that were quite compassionate. Shortly after the dropping of the first bomb, Senator Russell, uh, a dominant force in the Senate, wrote a letter to Truman, a telegram, and he said, we need to keep dropping these atomic bombs on Japan until we completely destroy Tokyo and uh, you know, make them pay for what they did and don't forget about Pearl Harbor. And Truman wrote back and said, I'm not going to do that because no matter how awful and brutal the Japanese leadership has been, I have a sense of compassion for the women and children and innocent people of Japan. So, you know, what we really see is a great deal of ambivalence and mixed feelings on the part of even those who push through the decision to drop the bombs. And was there, at least in moral terms, a great deal of difference between the dropping of the bombs, the nuclear weapons, and um, the carpet bombing of Japanese cities, which killed tens of thousands of Japanese citizens as well? And the fire bombings. Yeah. Fire bombings, which were extremely cruel. In moral terms, no. In practical terms, yes, only that uh, the atomic bombs kept on killing. Because after after the immediate effects, you had higher rates of cancer, uh, birth defects, deformations, etc., and and permanent scarring. Uh, some of whom, some of the people who suffered in that way, came to the United States later or had uh, plastic surgery, uh, but many did not. Uh, but the cancer rates, by some estimates, are many times higher in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, for, for years after. Zach, there's a major new film coming out this year on uh, Oppenheimer, one of the men who built the bomb. Um, do you get into the struggle between vengeance and virtue amongst scientists, the people who built these weapons in your book? A bit, yes. There were a number who really tried to, uh, to stop, who changed their minds. Leo Sillard among them, he was the man who initially brought um, the breakthroughs in, in uh, nuclear physics to Roosevelt's attention. He got Einstein, his friend, to write a letter to the president and let him know that the Germans were making advances and that the US had better get on it. Uh, and Sillard then has second thoughts as do many other of the leading scientists. And they write letters. Uh, they even approach, some of them even approach Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, and try to get him to agree uh, not to use it against civilians, but to have instead a demonstration of the bomb on a deserted island. Uh, obviously, all of their efforts came to naught, but there is a, a split within those leading scientists. They form a separate group, and they meet at night, and they, they talk about what have we done, and how do we stop it? Let's move on to the, the third example in the book, the decision to rebuild Germany rather than 
put it back into the Stone Age. You mentioned uh, Morgenthau. We did a show. Someone's written a major book on the Morgenthau's. Was Morgenthau the vengeful figure in the in in, in the Roosevelt administration when it came to the decision of whether or not to rebuild Germany? The issue over the Marshall Plan. Well, yes, but I should add that one of the more interesting aspects of of this research is that people switch sides. Someone could be vengeful on one case and worst of all on another. And that was true of Morgenthau because he didn't want anything to do with the Japanese internment issue. He called it a historical overreaction, totally impractical. He tried to distance himself from it. But then when it came to Germany, he had a different view and he pushed through one of the harshest plans for occupation. And ultimately it had to be watered down and modified, but still what we end up with for the first two and a half years or so of occupation is extremely harsh because of Morgenthau's influence. US occupying forces are not permitted to help the Germans rebuild their economy. And that exacerbated extreme starvation and suffering to the point where General Clay, who was overseeing the American zone, he later wrote in his memoir that he just couldn't stomach seeing the suffering and they had to do everything they could to work around the official policy and try to subvert it. Here's a general later saying that he was flouting orders, trying to uh, get around this extremely harsh policy. That was Morgenthau's influence. I'm guessing, Zach, though, that it was deep ambivalence in terms of dealing with this issue. Uh, on the one hand, of course, they had the failure of Versailles uh, and of Wilsonianism to deal with as a model for avoiding another a return to anger and vengefulness in Germany. On the other hand, the war crime, and everyone knew by, what, 40, 44, 45, even 43, the unimaginable war crimes of the, of the Nazi regime, war crimes that had never been committed before or perhaps since in history. So this struggle between vengeance and virtue must have been particularly difficult when it came to the question of rebuilding Germany. Yes, and yet most people inside Roosevelt's administration favored rebuilding Germany, bringing it back into the community of nations and making it a real stakeholder in a stable, prosperous Europe for a number of reasons. They didn't think that Europe could rebuild without a strong Germany, that keeping it down, or as Herbert Hoover said, we can keep the Germans in economic chains, but it will keep Europe in rags. And he was right. And ultimately, that had to be uh, the Morgenthau policy had to be abandoned and replaced by the Marshall Plan. And then, of course, we have an added crinkle to all this, which is the Soviet Union and the beginnings of the Cold War. How did this play out in terms of the struggle between vengeance and virtue when it came to Americans' moral or other responsibility to rebuild Germany? And how did it also manifest itself in America's policy towards the Soviet Union, where vengeance and virtue seems to have been a feature for about 40 or 50 years? Yes. Well, Americans wanted to be a model of goodness. That's how they've always seen themselves. And you can see them saying in many of these cases and throughout the 1940s, whenever the government is pursuing policies that seem too cruel, you hear them saying, 
this is not who we are, sometimes in exactly those words, and more often in words like, uh, we're a people who believe in fair play. There was even a fair play committee that formed. Uh, one, of, one of the members was a former chancellor of Berkeley, in fact, uh, David Barrows. And uh, as, as people pushed more and more for um, merciful policies, you had, you had people saying, look, the Soviets are our mirror image. We can't afford to be like them or be seen like them. And the same thing is true of the Nazis, even though after they've been defeated, they're held up as the anti-model and understandably. And uh, when Hoover goes around the country, Herbert Hoover, trying to raise support for Americans sacrificing to feed starving Europeans and help rebuild Germany and the rest of Europe. And he's asking people to go hungry several times a week to eat less bread and less grain and have more food to ship to Europe. He does that by saying things like, look, our flag flies over parts of Germany and we want our flag to represent more than just military power. We want it to represent our, our ideals. And he even says the one time he gets a, a real rousing ovation from a, a huge crowd, he says, uh, we do not want to preside over a nation of Buchenwalds. Is there a problem, though, Zach, that this idea of this is not who we are, of American virtue in the world, of its responsibility to bring out the best in everyone and export its virtue in democracy, can also be corrupted? It certainly was corrupted during Vietnam. Uh, it's arguable that it was corrupted during it, the recent debacle in Iraq. Um, should we be That's a little kind of careful to, 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 to take this too religiously, this struggle between vengeance and virtue, because often an attempt to be virtuous results maybe not in vengefulness, but certainly in disaster of one kind or another. It's overreach, Andrew. It's the, the problem comes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having noble ideals, nothing at all. And in fact, we, we need that in the world. We need to have uh, ideals to strive toward. What we when we get into trouble, it's from overreach. When nations try to do that which is beyond their means, and I think we saw that very clearly in Afghanistan for twenty years. Mm. Uh, so this is, I think, I, I have a piece in Foreign Policy magazine that talks about this, looking at uh, from the period at the end of World War II up through Afghanistan, looking at all of the major triumphs and failures of US foreign policy. And I think this is the key thread that runs through it when there's overreach, when a nation doesn't really respect the limits of its own power, that's when its ideals get it into trouble. Zach, how would you respond to some people who would read this book and this thesis and say, well, every nation claims to be good and America is no different. America is in fact, no different a power. It's a great power. It's manifested that power to pursue its own interests. Um, this is the argument in, in some ways, I guess, of isolationists or hardcore realists. Can one be an isolationist and still um, be virtuous, at least in terms of America? Well, first of all, I don't think that it makes sense to think of countries as good or bad. Uh, 
Countries are just collections of individuals and institutions, and they do good or bad things over time. It depends on the context. So I think that's not a not a helpful way to characterize but, but, but a country. Does your right? book, um, <laughs> sorry to jump in here. I, sure, no, please. Is there some sort of explicit exceptionalism in this title and, and this thesis? Or are you saying that it, it could equally apply to France or Britain or Russia or China or any other great power? I think it's clear that Americans have a real narrative and a conception of themselves as uh, being especially good, maybe not uniquely good, but especially good. And when they said, this is not who we are, when they objected to policies they perceived as overly harsh or cruel, they were really saying, this is not who we want to be. And I think that's the, the key point here is that people uh, came out when they thought their government was doing something wrong. Just think about in recent times, the mass protests that followed the murder of George Floyd from major cities to small towns. You heard people say, this is not who we are. And they're really saying, this is not who we want to be. And it was true when people reacted to the fall of Kabul and the chaos that the government seemed to be in disarray and its, its uh, evacuation of Afghanistan. And you saw it when uh, some years back when at the southern border of the US, the Trump administration had a policy of taking children away from their parents and locking them in cages. Across the political divide, you heard people say, this is not who we are. And I think that's uh, what is an interesting aspect of America is how people will really come out forcefully against policies they think are cruel because they have this conception of themselves as especially good embodying these great ideals. So what, what, what then should we make of the 30, 35, 40% of Americans who supported Trump, his exceptionalism, his isolationism, um, his policy on the border, uh, his disinterest in Black Lives Matter? Are they, in your mind at least, not really Americans? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> People have different views. That's, that's understandable. But when we're talking, there's a difference between uh, having differences over policy and pursuing policies that are actually cruel, that overwhelming majorities see as cruel and feel that this is not who we are. And America, like most countries, this is true, always has a minority that is, uh, can be especially uncompassionate. And that's not what's unique here. But what's interesting is that we sometimes forget that typically the majority is in favor of mercy, not revenge. It's interesting, Zach, over the last 50 years, the one institution in America where people think dramatically differently today than they did, say, back in the 60s, is the military. We think much more highly of the military, especially in comparison to the times in Vietnam. We tend to give military officers the benefit of the doubt. Um, you teach uh, military officers at the Postgraduate uh, Institute in, in Monterey, the Naval Institute. H how does this argument about this is not who we are, America's struggle between vengeance and virtue, how does it play out um, in your classes? Is there a difference in the way in which 
soldiers, sailors, uh, servicemen respond and service women respond than uh, civilians? I teach officers. They've been selected to come to uh, receive graduate education. It's a master's degree and a few will do a PhD. This is a select group. They're highly motivated, extremely respectful, hardworking, and really top-notch. And uh, I think once they are exposed to information, most of them think it through and uh, can make reasoned, sober decisions. So uh, just like the rest of the country, people have to have information brought to them. When we live in information bubbles, that has that is creating a great deal of a rift in our society. Anytime we can overcome that and graduate level education is a great place to do that uh, when we can expose people to more information and critical thinking skills, then I think we we come together much more. Yeah, it's interesting that I think the one institution that came out of the the Trump years with some distinction was the military general Miley in particular seems to be a key figure in pushing back against Trump and making it clear that there was no there was not going to be any military coup. It's an important argument. This is not who we are. America's struggle between vengeance and virtue by my guest, Zachary Shaw. Zachary, to end, um, uh, frequent viewers of this show will note that you're not on the video. Um, we're doing this in video. It may come out as audio too. You're an unusual historian in that you're blind. And we talked a little bit before we went live about how you do your work. It's hard enough being a historian if you can read. Uh, books. How, how, how do you do your work as a blind man in terms of enormous amounts of research and writing? Well, it does take uh, some degree of time and effort. I have a lot of different techniques. I use in the archives, I use uh, sighted people to read documents to me, uh, but I also have software. I have a screen reading software on my laptop so that anything I type will be spoken and anything I can get uh, in digital format can be spoken. There's a great service called uh, Bookshare for the Blind that allows us to download digitized versions of books. But of course, not everything is on there, only a small selection of, of books and uh, only more recent books. Since I need more historical documents, uh, we have to find lots of different ways to, to work around it. And it takes time. But you know, when you love what you do, when you really have burning questions that you want to answer, then the effort, it's its not an effort, it's a joy. And and that's <laughs> thats who I am, really, Andrew. This is, this is who I am. I, I love what I do. And answering questions, hard questions, is what I want to keep doing.